Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to our 4th of July special Battleground Wisconsin. Unfortunately, Rebecca Lynch is not going to be with us uh, this week. We hope to have Rebecca and her wonderful insights back next week. But I am joined by Robert Craig, our Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, welcome. Good morning, everyone. Happy 4th of July. Uh, weekend to you. Um, we are recording a special episode here uh, Wednesday uh, early afternoon. Um, we waited until after Governor Evers gave his uh, state budget speech and so we're going to spend a good chunk of the uh, show this week discussing uh, what Evers did on the budget. Uh, we'll also spend some time talking about what's next on health care, um, there's some big big news next week with the Texas court case uh, starting oral arguments. We'll hopefully spend a little bit of time also talking about some of what's been going on around the border and the events this week around closing camps. Uh, but there's also additional news out about the rich getting richer here in America as we head into the 4th of July. So Robert, as we are recording, we're, we're just, just removed from Governor Evers this Wednesday giving his speech in response to what turned out to be not a full budget veto. There had been some discussion, although we talked about it on the podcast, we did not think it was likely that the governor was going to veto the entire budget. But we did have a fairly robust discussion about like what the governor could potentially do with what most say is the one of the strongest line item vetoes. Um, so before I kick it to you, Robert, obviously by the time folks listen, it's no news, but Medicaid expansion will not be included in this budget. And the, the governor did not find any way to either try to negotiate or line item veto to bring Medicaid back into the discussion. We'll talk more about that. Um, but there were 78 vetoes, which is the most we've had since Governor Doyle. Uh, not a big surprise since Walker had fairly, you know, had legislatures that were going to be sending like budgets, <laughs> like-minded legislatures, yes. Um, so, Robert, I want to get your initial thoughts about the budget overall, and um, and then let's talk very specifically about Medicaid expansion um, and, and its lack of inclusion in the budget. Yeah, so I think we have to take a step back a little, Matt, and talk about what was going on with this budget process in general uh, and what kind of a difficult situation Tony Evers faced. Uh, I don't want to be overly critical of the governor because he was in an extremely difficult situation. Uh, and really, he was the only party involved that actually cared about the consequences. In other words, he was elected by the whole people. He's someone who has been a civil servant his entire, most of his entire career. And I think he felt a very deep responsibility that if he took more dramatic action and force a budget impasse, which is what I thought was eventually going to happen, and I'll talk about how he could have done that, that it would have led to disastrous consequences. And they had him over a barrel, uh, Speaker Voss did in particular, because he was threatening to go home in Octo until October with the whole assembly. And so if Tony Evers was to veto the whole budget or veto parts of the budget, like the education budget or the Medicaid budget, uh, to force Medicaid expansion, 
if Voss goes home, then it then it literally zeroes out. It doesn't revert to the Walker budget. If you do a large line item veto, like of a whole section, it becomes zero. And so he thought that there was a substantial possibility that he would do tremendous damage to the state. And if and in fact, if he had vetoed uh, the whole, it, it, the, so that's the problem that he was the responsible party. And part of the problem here is uh, it goes back to the 2010 election, quite frankly, and the gerrymandering of the of the state legislature. Uh, in it is it cannot be repeated. We repeat a lot in Battleground, Wisconsin, Matt, but it can't be repeated too many times uh, that this is an illegitimate state assembly because Democrats won the state assembly in terms of popular vote by 300,000 votes by by 53 to uh, to 46 percent, and it produced a 63. 36 Republican supermajority uh, and Robin Voss is speaker. And we talked, we, I think we mentioned this in the last Battleground Wisconsin, the multiple state senators, our members, citizen action members did across the state who said that they supported uh, uh, Medicaid expansion, uh, that they would like to take the money. But what is the point in bucking their party when Robin Voss has the power to kill it and he started out saying over my dead body and then had hashtag never? So... It is important to point out, as Robert said, um, this is not this is not a perfect deal. Governor Evers himself said that unfortunately he believes that the budget that he's signing in many ways is insufficient. So he is conceding at some level that you know there was limits to what his ability to negotiate. And we'll we'll talk more about maybe some disagreements we might have had about how he might have used his his leverage a little more. But clearly, because of the gerrymandering. Uh, it, o- over a barrel, and and let's just face it: the Republicans' inability to even want to sit down and have any kind not, of not even an ability. Robin Voss assured that, and Robin Voss wants to be governor, and Robin Voss wants to deny Governor Evers any victories. So they took out every major Evers priority, right? Uh, and uh, quite frankly, he wants Evers to have no accomplishment so that Tony, so that he will be the recumbent nominee in 2022 and defeat Tony Evers. And so, and is willing to damage the state. I mean, if you literally, if you zeroed out the school budget, right, uh, it would, or, or you impose, if you did the whole veto, you could have the Walker school budget without inflation. It would do tremendous damage in the fall when school districts are forced to do their budgets according to the U- to the state constitution, and so Tony Evers was aware of that and didn't want to risk that. The problem is, he ended up leaving because he's the responsible party, power on the table, whereas Evers is ruthlessly using every piece of his power. Voss, yes. Voss, excuse me. Did I say I said Evers? <laughs> Voss. No, Evers is not ruthlessly using every inch of his power. Voss is, and so, but I got to say this. It's really easy for me or any commentator, and I mean, I lead an organization, so I'm not completely irresponsible, but I wasn't elected by the whole people to have these responsibilities myself, like Governor Evers was, uh, that he had to make the decision. And he had to think about, is uh, you know, having an impasse and, and vetoing the whole budget, the second year of the budget was another option, or big parts of the budget, is that worth the risk that uh, literally Voss will go nu- take it nuclear, refuse to come back and let people, let children be damaged. 
And so he decided that would not be responsible. And it, it and really, we have to respect that decision because he's a good man. I also think, though, fortunately, it's not a presidential speech. So most people will not see the governor's budget veto address in full like they would a presidential speech. And it'll be mediated and there are good things to quote from it. So the media coverage so far is good and talks about how much he did veto. But I just said, since... One of the things people liked about Tony Evers was that he wasn't some fake politician like Scott Walker, who was always happy, who was always winning, who was always like making it up as he went along. And so, but I sensed in it, and and very few, but the most hardcore activists like us will have watched the whole speech in live. Um, a sadness that he had things he wanted to accomplish they couldn't, and that the people are with him, and the system is so rigged right now, and he, and he faces such implacable opponents, which is what the right-wing movement is right now. It's a winner-take-all movement that he couldn't do it responsibly. And so I, you, you couldn't escape the sense of kind of sadness in his voice, even though he was trying to, to put on the brave face. Yeah, and I do want to add, uh, we mentioned the school funding. I know last week, Robert, you mentioned here about him being a you know, lifelong civil servant. I, when we discussed his options last week, I talked about that. And, and when he was with DPI being, you know, he was, he was actually publicly happy about the resources in the final Walker budget that Republicans put forth. Uh, because he gets uh, the austerity budgets of the early Walker administrations and how damaging they were to public education, and rightfully um, sees that you know de- you know increases of of the size. And by the way, they added sixty. F- he was able to add an extra sixty-five million through his veto to get five hundred seventy million over two years added to to education. And he sees that as I think as a really you know, too much to pass up amongst a number of other things that uh, are in this in this budget. But ultimately, um, this does present, and and we'll talk more in the next segment, Robert. I want to get more, but this does present uh, an, a potential opportunity for the Republicans to declare victory. Right, that for the most part, you know, uh, despite the the vetoes, this is the Republican budget that passed today, and it didn't take Scott Fitzgerald long to. Exp- very long to get this uh, out into the media. He's uh, out claiming victory, that saying basically Walker, uh, uh, that uh, Governor Evers basically signed the Republican version of the budget today. So, Robert, just get your initial thoughts, right? Like the one question or issue, and we can carry this into the next segment, is this is still mostly the Republican bu- budget. Obviously, Evers' position uh, is that that budget was largely shaped by his initial budget and and public pressure, right, on these issues has, has moved. Um, your initial thoughts on, like, uh, who do you, th- how do you think this washes out? Do you think Evers is able to spin this as, as, as a victory? Uh, or is this something where the Republicans can go around and say, look, this is essentially our budget? I'm glad some of the media spin is about the vetoes. Uh, I think probably governor, the governor's speech sort of focused more on, on how many vetoes there were. Uh, in order to strengthen, you know, the sense that he was winning something. Uh, but it did come out in the, the initial media coverage anyway, which is a good thing. Uh, it is very hard to say. Uh, I think that, uh, and I think we may be overstating it because unlike in a presidential level, I'm not sure the public's going to really focus on that at the end of the day very much or even notice. Maybe we're overthinking it. 
Robert, I'm going to hold you here. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll get your, your the rest of your thoughts right after this break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to Citizen Action's Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking about the state budget and news that broke this morning. Uh, we're recording Wednesday uh, that Governor Evers has signed the Republican state budget. He had 78 vetoes. Um, and Robert, we were just talking about, you know, um, the positioning. Will the Republicans be able to state that this is pretty much a Republican budget, declare victory versus Evers made 78 uh, vetoes changed it a bit, put more money into education, and the argument that their budget operated within the context of his pressure with his budget and public opinion. Your thoughts? I think it's too early to tell, and I don't think the public has the same level of attention to a state budget or a governor, or or even all of them don't even know who Robin Foss and Scott Fitzgerald are. So I'm not sure if we're talking about you know, the, the next election or the election after that, that, you know, who won the budget is going to be a major thing. Uh, my major concern is about could the governor have used his leverage to get Medicaid expansion, for example, right. which is it's an outrage that we don't have it. And as I said in the last segment, I, I didn't have the responsibility the governor had. The risks of playing budget brinksmanship with, with Robin Voss are severe because he's willing to damage uh, people, damage the people of the state, damage kids, damage school districts. And so only the governor could make that decision. I respect him as a good person who was doing what he thought was the right thing to do under the circumstances. And I'll say this, unlike a lot of national politicians, uh, he was willing to do what he thought was needed to the people rather than what was in the, what he might, you know, want to do, you know, fight on, right? And to it. And so he, he the, if he conceded some of his power, he was doing it for the for for with go, very good motives, and we should want someone like that uh, leading us, right? Um, but I'd recommend it, and there's an op-ed I wrote that came out this week. We can put the link in on our in our web page. I'd recommended that the governor was essentially um, uh, giving in to Voss's uh, attempt to make himself de facto governor because he controlled even the Senate because of his illegitimate gerrymandered supermajority in the state assembly. And he wants to be governor, and he wants to deny Evers any power. And the biggest power Evers had was the budget process, because the bill that has to pass, and his veto pen in it, and access to public opinion. And what I had proposed is he should have vetoed either the entire budget or large parts and then when Evers, when, v, when Foss, excuse me, uh, followed through on his threat uh, to take the assembly, uh, uh, you know, home basically until October, uh, say he should have said in his veto message, "I'm going to be in the in the in the publicly in the governor's conference room on the east wing, uh, open to reporters and sitting at the front and waiting every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Uh, for Senate Majority Leader Fitzgerald and Speaker Voss to come negotiate with me." And literally, there would be all this press attention to the fact that the governor wants to fix the budget and to make it whole, and that they they're not doing their jobs and they won't even come. 
And the result then would be, because that matters a lot to them, they were damaged in the lame duck session, and they're seen still in the polls, the Republicans, as the uncollaborative folks, which they were. They refused to work with Evers in his budget. They just ignored his budget, did their own, ignored the Democrats. And the public actually knows that. Then he would be, he would be able to force, through public pressure, them to come in and negotiate with him. And I think rather than trying, you know, holding up Olive Branch and then having them turn it away and then doing their own budget, that he is, it's not his intention, but he has inadvertently rewarded that, that kind of behavior. So for our listeners who didn't get a chance to read that, we'll have a link to that Cap Times article, uh, excuse me, op-ed um, on our website here at the Battleground Wisconsin. So Robert Evers, in his address... Specifically, it was the first question asked about Medicaid and asked about this very issue and, you know, his decision. Uh, so Evers, in response, suggested that he's not going to give up the fight. Um, he still feels that this is critically important and that he's going to move standalone legislation. So talk more about that. Talk more about how that might or might not work, right? And are you at all now, after hearing his speech and seeing, getting a better sense of the vetoes, um, how does that square with what you wrote earlier in the week, right, and, and what you were um, proposing? Talk more about, like, sort of what the best options are uh, for, for the governor going forward uh, if, if moving as standalone legislation. Well, it makes sense to, to move the standalone Medicaid expansion legislation. The problem is it won't move. And the leverage was in the budget process, but the governor could use his bully pulpit. I mean, he can, will certainly keep pushing for it. Citizen Action members and, and coalition partners across the state work their tails off and can keep fighting, I can keep pushing on those state senators who say they're for it, but are uh, taking the politically easy way out by letting Voss kill it, right, and say it's Voss's fault, which is what they're telling our members, a number of them. Uh, and so, it, it, but it mainly has to be seen as something that keeps the issue alive so that you can hold Republicans accountable for turning down Badger Care expansion in the next election. Uh, because if you're not going to get them to put in the budget, you're certainly going to get them to move standalone legislation. But it's worth doing, right, and, and worth keeping on the well, public qu question mind. Question for you on that, on that. Can that process, is there a way that process can, can ferret out these Republicans who have been telling our members and others that if they could get a clean shot on, you know, expanding Medicaid, they would. I mean, does, I mean, my assumption is this doesn't get a vote or doesn't even get a hearing potentially. Talk more about like, can we, can there, is there a way to force a process that actually could lead to, 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 to votes on, on, on this? I don't think there is with standalone legislation that I know of. There would have been with the budget, he could have potentially vetoed some things that were very important to Republicans that he's willing to agree to in order to force them to want to expand Medicaid. Do you see what I mean? So, But now there's nothing, unless there's some sort of bill that they really, really want to pass at this level that he can hold up in return, right? That, And I don't know, unless they, this is sort of like unpredictable, is there something that happens that creates that scenario? Yeah. It, it seems unlikely, but it, it's, it's possible. Uh, what, what, there was one thing yes. that we saw that was in the vetoes, and again, we have not had a chance to read thoroughly through, but Kevin Kane um, here did read to us that uh, in vetoing the Medicaid money, 
uh, Evers did take the money, the extra Medicaid reimbursement money that was set to go to the docs and the hospitals and pulled that money. He took half million took, of it. Took half million of it. Do you think that that might be leverage where, uh, you know, the, the medical professional community and the, the hospitals could be supportive and put a lot of pressure on because... I assume in any kind of standalone bill, there would be potentially um, a fiscal note that might bring more resources or change that. Is that is that a possibility, or is that? I don't know if Matt, if that's enough money on yeah. the reimbursement rate. Maybe it is. Uh, the hospitals. I, we've mentioned this in background, Wisconsin, but let me be clear: they structure themselves as nonprofits that care about people's health. They have acted like any corporate lobbying group would act in this process. Uh, when Governor Evers came out uh, for pure Medicaid expansion and using the Badger Care program to do it, they whined about, about Badger Care and demanded a private option, which would save no money and would put, make people be, uh, deal with insurance companies. And then they played games with the Republicans and got their, their large reimbursement rate increases mostly put in without Medicaid expansion. And I think Evers is right to slap them on the wrist for that. So I'm glad to see that. That's some fight. I don't know if it's leverage enough to make them actually push for a standalone bill or not. Uh, the way to use that might have been to tell them you're going to do it uh, earlier in the budget process. And perhaps he did. And perhaps his folks did, uh, so that uh, so it encourages them not to go and play both sides as they did. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, it maybe it brings the hospitals back in play, but quite frankly, the hospitals did uh, support Medicaid expansion originally uh, under Governor Walker, and he felt free just to ignore them. So, given that seems to be central to Robin Voss's whole theory of how he'll win the Republican nomination. It, it's an outmoded theory. I think this is a, a theory from uh, the Obama era that it, no, any draconian position against health care helps you in Republican primaries. I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore with health care being the top public issue uh, the way it is. But Voss is committed to that strategy. And so I'm not sure what leverage there is that would change Voss's position here. And of course, we know that the U.S. Supreme Court has sanctified partisan gerrymandering and washed their hands of it as of last week. So before we go to break, I just want to talk to our members and everybody who fought incredibly hard to try and get this Medicaid expansion into the state budget. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm a little bummed, right? I'm a little depressed about what happened today. And um, part of me feels like we left, left some power on the table for something that we had the public will. And, um, but... It happened, and we got to move forward, and we cannot give up this fight um, because of this disappointment. Um, there is much more to do. We'll talk more in the next segment. Um, next week, on Tuesday, oral arguments start in the Texas lawsuit to defeat or to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. We're going to talk more about that after we get back from this from the break. But we got to get back on the offensive. We have got to keep this issue in the forefront. And what I would say to folks is election 2020 is on. It, it really does begin today with this state budget um, in terms of the Republicans clearly laying out in, in, uh, on Medicaid, right? And so we now have this issue. And I challenge folks who have been thinking about running for state legislature, time to get in. 
time to get in and let's challenge these Republicans who voted for this. Um, this issue is not going away, and we need to uh, uh, sweep people out of office, and that is uh, a huge next step. So, But with that, we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. We'll talk about uh, protecting the Affordable Care Act right after this break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action, and we are talking health care. We spent our first two segments uh, discussing the state budget and Governor Evers and accepting it with 78 vetoes, but unfortunately Medicaid not being included. Um, so nor, Robert... Nor, nor his, uh, his, his plans to really fully fund and fairly fund education. Yeah, yep, absolutely. So I want us to look a little forward and... Um, Next week on Tuesday, that's July 9th, the Texas court case is up for, for the beginning of oral arguments. Robert, remind our listeners why the Texas case is so important um, and why this is actually a really important opportunity for us as progressives to start getting back out there and, you know, quite frankly, um, uh, setting, starting to set this issue up for 2020. And this is becoming a huge issue, folks, just so you know, this Texas case. And Wisconsin used to be the second state on the case, thanks to Scott Walker and the previous attorney general of the state. And during one of the weeks or so that the lame duck laws were invalidated before they were revalidated by the Republican state Supreme Court, uh, Attorney General Call was able to pull out. So we are, and, and Tony Evers weighed in and asked him to do that as well, made an official request. So that is one victory that we're out of that lawsuit, but it's still moving forward. And some of the listeners who are new to this may say, "Didn't we? Hasn't the Affordable Care Act been upheld by the Supreme Court multiple times? Uh, Forty or fifty? No. Yeah. <laughs> well, two big ones. Yeah. And uh, so they have a whole other bite at the apple. And, uh, put together by right-wing attorney generals with all the right-wing think tanks behind it because they're relentless. And as I say, they don't cede any power, right? And what they're saying is, is that since Justice Roberts in his strangely contrived um, approval of the Affordable Care Act when he was a swing vote said it was based on the fact that it was a tax, given that the Trump Congress and the Paul Ryan Congress uh, went and made the tax zero, that is the penalty for not having insurance, there's no tax, and therefore it's invalid. And what was interesting is, originally the Trump administration, uh, unlike the Texas Attorney General and Scott Walker and, and our Attorney General here, uh, actually they argued it takes out the whole Affordable Care Act, so that means everything which means pre-existing condition discrimination is legal again. Everyone who's covered this way loses their coverage. There's no, ra there's no rules for what insurance has to include. No kids covered in their parents' policies if they're 26, lifetime limits, annual limits, all of that goes away, okay? Um, but the Trump administration originally did an amicus brief where they more narrowly said that would take out a couple of the major provisions, important provisions, but not everything. Well, that was changed by guess who? Drum roll. Uh, Trump Attorney Trump, General William Barr, right, uh, who's really not the Attorney General, the personal defense lawyer for President Trump, changed it to everything. 
Okay, and that was a big enough deal that that actually chased. It was before the Mueller report came, uh, came out. It was a couple of weeks before uh, the Mueller report off the headlines, and that was a headline for a couple of days nationally. Well, it's in federal court. It's not quite to the Supreme Court yet where min- new, newly minted uh, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh uh, could be weighing in. Instead, it is, it is at the next level, federal appeals court, a, a right-wing j- judge at the federal district court level already agreed uh, with the suit and invalidated the Affordable Care Act, but then stayed action, so did not take it out. So this is a tremendous threat. And so Ju- July 9th, that is Tuesday after the 4th of July, is the oral arguments. And states that are wise are actually putting as much of the Affordable Care Act protections as possible into state law to protect their state. Of course, Wisconsin has not because we have because we have Speaker Voss and Majority Leader Fitzgerald, despite the fact that they lost on pre-existing condition discrimination and promised that would be job one and made pre-existing condition discrimination bills, Assembly Bill and Senate Bill 1, uh, people have lost track. That was at the beginning of the, uh, of the legislature. Uh, nothing's happened. It went through the Assembly. It's dead. It's, it's not moved in the Senate. So even on that issue, and that's not the only protection the ACA has, we're very vulnerable. So we will be having announcing on Tuesday with a number of state legislators, both senators and state representatives who are great on health care, a package of legislation that we'll be advocating to protect the state from, a, from, this, from the U.S. Supreme Court and, an, and, a, and a potentially dangerous decision that would come down in the Texas case. It would not come down from the U.S. Supreme Court until next year. They decide to take up their cases uh, over the summer. They, they have our oral arguments like and, uh, and, and presentations in the fall, and then they start putting out decisions in the new year. So uh, they would, this, would, this would be decided sometime in, in probably the spring of 2020. So this is the time to pass legislation that prevents pre-existing addition discrimination, prevents uh, lifetime limits, annual limits, requires mental health parity and substance use coverage, free preventive care, uh, kids being able to stay in their parents' policies, uh, you name it. Everything we can put in state law would protect us from this, from such a Supreme Court decision. So there you have it, folks. We already now on this show have already talked about two pieces of state legislation that need to be in the hopper soon as possible. Uh, that would be Governor Evers announcing that he'll be having a standalone Medicaid bill, right? We got to push that, keep the pressure on. But as Robert mentioned, the ACA at the federal level, it's very, very important that we constantly keep drawing attention to the important provisions that are in there. But the other thing here is tying together these two issues, right, in terms of the Affordable Care Act and what we just experienced through the state budget crisis. For people who are paying close attention to the state budget crisis, the Republicans throughout the Medicaid discussions, constantly talked about how we didn't need it, need the expansion because we had the Affordable Care Act and because it was doing such a great job of covering everybody um, and that it was a private system and all this. The um, act they've been trying to repeal for years and they, and they were not going to let us out of the Texas case, by the way. Exactly. Not that consistency has ever been a problem for right-wing rhetoric. But the point is, right, we cannot let our disappointment over what happened in the budget impact our ability to keep on the offensive. 
and not determine that this is the end, right? Like This is just another stage in the fight. And they are on the defensive. The public opinion of 70% support for Medicaid expansion and overwhelming support for the Affordable Care Act didn't change because of the Republicans' gerrymandering. And we need to continue to keep the pressure up on this issue as we head into the elections. And, and making sure that we're very clear with voters that there is a huge federal component to this that impacts Trump and all your congressional folks, and then a huge state component that impacts the state legislature. And so we are going to be extraordinarily busy here at Citizen Action over the next six months uh, with a series of legislation that will continue to keep this on the front burner. And that doesn't just mean straight up healthcare coverage. Lots of other things we can do about workforce, you know, uh, better paying workers, long-term care, prescription drugs. Robert? I was going to say, and we'll also be focusing on the big national picture, which is far more promising. Uh, Medicare for all is really gaining steam. Uh, folks saw the the, governor, the presidential debates, and so we saw how many candidates are for either pure Medicare for all or for very robust public options that would make Medicare available to everyone, both of which uh, are bold steps forward, and they're, they're competing with each other on that ground. So that is a teaser. I'm, our next episode, our next segment, we're going to talk more about the presidential race. Since we're not going to do a deep dive on any one candidate this week, I'm going to ask Robert to talk a little bit more post those debates last week, where the presidential Democratic candidates are lining up on health care, and what are the key sort of fault lines in terms of the different options out there, uh, both Medicare for all and other things. But before we do that, we got a couple minutes left in the segment, Robert. Wanted to get your thoughts on big news this week. It appears the Trump administration is moving forward on the census without the citizenship question. This is actually huge, uh, especially as we think about you know, the next uh, decade and where we're going to be in terms of proper representation. Well, it's fascinating uh, where it's not a surprise that, that Governor Evers would be pragmatic, right, and and decide what was in what was in everyone's best interest for Trump to back down on one of his big issues to be slapped down, in fact, by Chief Justice Roberts, who said their excuses for the citizenship question were clearly contrived. Uh, remember, originally there's also these documents that are leaked that showed that it was a lobbyist who came up with it as a yeah. campaign tactic, and then they came up with a defend the voting right when, rights act. When excuse. I heard Roberts' comments on that, like yeah. uh, writing, I. My first thought was like, well, okay, he's talking about how he might come back with something else, but how do you want that stay to come back with another reason that gets around your original very, reason for doing this? Well, as both re- right-wing Republicans, it was very gentle. He said, you can come back with different reasons as if they had any, right? This was the contrived yes. reason covering up the real reason. And so, and then you had Trump saying offensive things from the from outside a helicopter, I believe, if I heard it in the background of the radio uh, cuts I heard, uh, talking, you know, calling undocumented people, you know, offensive names and saying that he didn't see why we couldn't do this. And then a day later, they're printing the census. And so uh, for normal presidents, you would have thought, 
right, and I mean this is this is this is a, this is a hopefully not a new normal. That it's in the Constitution, he has to do it, and they're at the deadline for printing, so clearly he's going to do it. But he was saying for days, we go delay, we go delay, and it's violating other constitutional provisions, the Emoluments Clause. So and 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 ignoring subpoenas, uh, carte blanche from the from the uh, co-equal branch of government, the House of Representatives. So. It seemed plausible he was going to refuse to print the census, but uh, apparently they got the he, cooler heads, relative to him anyway, these are not cool heads around him, uh, prevailed and they are printing. Uh, we do have to get going here uh, to break, but before we do, um, we want to thank all the groups, including our Exion Ciudadana members uh, and allies who helped uh, throw protests, uh, throw a protest in Milwaukee against closing the camps, right? And this has been part of a national effort uh, to deal with what is just, I mean, every day it gets worse, uh, the images and what we're doing along our border. But uh, I want to thank everybody who was able to att attend that and keep the pressure on. We have to keep the pressure on. With that, we got to take a break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin or Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. We are talking a lot of health care this week. Um, we've talked extensively about what went on in the state budget. We've got the Texas ACA court case starting next week. And we talked a bit about next steps that we could take here in the state. Robert, I want to just spend this last segment talking with you a little bit about the presidential primary and health care. Um, the debates wrapped up last week. Uh, as of the show last week, we were really only able to talk about the first series, but um, uh, first series of debates, but the second night happened after recording, and so we've all had a chance now, and we're a week later. Want to get your thoughts on how you think the candidates performed on health care, sort of where they're at, but also if you could, right, I think our listeners are familiar with Medicare for All, but um, what else is out there? What are, what are these candidates also talking about? So just let's start by your, your analysis of where the candidates, how, how they performed on health care and sort of where they're staking out their positions. So there really are more variety of positions than would appear to the average person and, or to the average progressive activist because this stuff gets fairly complicated. And public opinion is greatly misunderstood in health care. In fact, the history of from Clinton forward has been both sides misinterpreting and overinterpreting public opinion and then facing backlashes, right? The most recent one being the backlash against Trump care, but don't forget the backlashes against Clinton care or the backlashes that came against ACA that led to the Tea Party victories in 2010 and actually helped cement our complete gerrymandered state assembly, going back to an earlier segment. And so this stuff is complicated. It's important to understand that Medicare for all, which is popular, maybe 56% roughly, give or take a few uh, points, uh, depending on the poll, is a support uh, by the general public, 90% by liberals, liberal part of the Democratic electorate, if you break them out, uh, means a broad range of things. Because there's a weird conundrum that of course, people who are really active in healthcare reform and, and long-term progressive activists take Medicare for all to be the Canadian healthcare system. And in fact, even more radical in some ways because they do have private insurance in Canada, but 
uh, the bills that we have for Medicare for All, the Bernie Sanders and the Pramila Jayapal bills, outlaw private insurance. Okay, In fact, you've talked about those bills as being sort of the the gold standard or the top, yes, top or platinum in standard. the world, yes. right? Like that, there's not really any comparison. So we are talking about running out, literally, what would be for you know, f- for this for the world, one of the best, which plans. is. Good, because if you, you better start out with what you really want because you have to negotiate, right? You're, so uh, obviously the, the, the stronger your opening bargaining position, the better. But uh, you better say, here's what a, a really good system would be. And so, but then the public, a very large majority of the public, thinks Medicare for all means that you can keep your private insurance if it works for you, which is, I know, inconsistent with what dedicated, long-term, progressive kind of crusaders believe, but that's where the public is. So, so Robert, that helps explain then why the, why the commentators would ask them, would you be willing to give up your private insurance? Because they were trying to get at that point. Or to ban it. Yep. Right. And, and so we had, what, four or three, three candidates raised their hands that they would four? We had... We had, I believe, three, three one night and two the other, okay, so, so five, five total, total. But I can go into that. But let me let so me less t- than a quarter. Of but the let candidates. me tell you the positions, and the positions get confusing because currently it's after these debates. There's kind of a notion: Are you for Medicare for all, as in there's nothing but Medicare, a new Medicare right. plan, or are you for a public option, which is that people who want to buy Medicare or buy into it can, right? Uh, one confusion about that is, is that there's a huge range, add one piece of complication, Matt, I apologize, yeah. that's the way healthcare goes, is there's a huge difference between quote-unquote public options, okay? The public option that everyone remembers at the end of the Affordable Care Act fight, which has been understood as something like Medicaid or Medicare, right, that would set the rates, negotiate prices in a lot of cases for physician drug companies, et cetera, cut out insurance companies, but people could choose that option, right? The one that was compromised out at the end to get Joe Lieberman's vote in the Senate— because we needed 60 votes in the Senate at that point, uh, was a very weak public option that couldn't even set the price, couldn't negotiate. It would have been pretty much worthless other than it was something that was broadly popular, the brand, right? A strong public option is literally one that, like the Medicare system, sets the price of health insurance, of, of coverage, of what providers are paid for each procedure, because the main cost is even is not an insurance, it's not even prescription drug companies, it's in the price charged by hospitals and, and medical providers, and that price is double, at least, any other country. It's all over the map, and it's going up all the time, and no one even knows what it is, because the system is so deliberately rigged, okay? So... There are to, to, so when, so since there are differences in public options, the strongest public o- option out there is called Medicare for America. It's a bill that that uh, Jan Schakowsky and 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 Rosa DeLauro uh, have put forward. It's a public option Medicare plan that is universal. It's available to employers. It's invo- available to every individual. It's uh, Medicaid, all the state's Medicaid programs are rolled into it, uh, for example. Uh, The Medicare program becomes part of it. It's completely universal. It sets the price. It negotiates fish and drug prices. It includes long-term care. It has funding mechanisms. It captures all the money being paid by employers. What it says to an employer is, you can can just pay us 8% of your payroll and 
all your employees will be in this Medicare program. If you don't want to do that, if you want to pay twice as much, which is what it would be, go buy private insurance. It's up to you. And so it leaves a, a, tenant, a choice. It would probably, if you passed it that strongly, put private insurance out of business because if you have a much cheaper, better plan, uh, and, and they, it fills all the gaps in Medicare as well, then why would you do private insurance? But the proposed advantage is you still get a choice, and one of the disadvantages of Medicare for All is the taking away of everyone's private insurance is, uh, is, could, could form, form in a major backlash. So, so you did a really good job there of laying out the crux of the political dilemma we face as progressives. So if you go for uh, the second plan that you talked about, a strong public option, it allows Republicans and conservatives to, as they will say, you're just going to kill the private system, that you're setting it up to fail. It has absolutely no chance. You're going to drown it. You're going to kill it. This functionally kills it anyways. Whereas you, however, get to go to the public and say, no, you can keep your private plan. You can and make those tie into those strong choice uh, motivations an individual has. However, you're leaving the private industry around to kick and scream, to fight, and to possibly muddy up the system and make it not work. So hence, you have the people who are purists about eliminating the private saying, if you don't get them out now in this big push, like they'll be there constantly destroying it and making it not work. It seems to be sort of the, the basic sort of uh, 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 decision point that I think progressives have to make about what's and, the best way to go forward. And there's going to be an end game with a new progressive president, knock on wood, where it's a legislative process, and you figure out what you can do, what, what are your majorities, do you have a Senate filibuster to deal with anymore, are you getting rid of the Senate filibuster like Elizabeth Warren would, a lot of other factors. We're going to have to have some level of flexibility and some willingness to accept uh, three-quarters of a loaf, but not to compromise with ourselves and lose everything, because the problem with a robust public option like Medicare for All is the strongest it'll be is when you're introducing it, it'll get watered down and does at some point become a very weak public option that's worthless, right? Yeah. Which it could happen in the process. Or does it happen, as you suggested, Matt, later when they water it down and attack it over time? But the big fights, regardless of whether you have Medicare for all or not, the biggest players are the hospitals. And they're going to exist because no one proposes nationalizing them. And they're going to fight like tooth and nail about actually setting their price and regulating their prices and, and, and normalizing them so that you absolutely have hip replacements related to the cost of a hip replacement with a reasonable profit on top of it, which is not what they do right now. And that's why they, they're structured for windfall profits, even though it's profits in, in another name, right? Profits in, in salaries and, and, and uh, buildings. So the other thing to be aware, though, is there's a byplay here in that the the, the, the movement left wants Medicare for all as pure single payer, okay? And it's become a, a litmus test on, on it, as far as, you know, the, the most progressive part of the Democratic Party. And so what's interesting is there was movement in this presidential debate because Bernie's been clear he wants Medicare for all as in pure single payer, right? De Blasio, who's not, as strong, as, as, not a front runner, uh, is for it. Elizabeth Warren has sounded a whole lot like she was for Medicare for America, not, not Medicare for all. And Camilla Harris 
came out for Medicare for All, but when she got in trouble and got got attacked for saying she'd get rid of private insurance, back backtracked and said she wouldn't for a while. Well, interestingly, because they're both competing for the, the progressive base, Elizabeth Warren put her hand up on banning private insurance. So she has moved. Now, whether she thinks that she'll have to settle for Medicare for America as another point, I think Bernie is hardcore, I'm doing Medicare for all, period, okay, even though he's open to transition plans, and his transition plan is longer than the House bill. Uh, And you had Camilla raising her hand, Camilla Harris. So that is extremely interesting with those three candidates, and those are the, uh, depending on which poll you look at, the number two, three, and four people in the poll. They're pretty much tied for second, the three of them. And Biden, Biden, because of his issues, came down about eight points after the debate. So Biden, they're getting much closer to Biden, though he still has a a decent lead. Biden is just wanting to improve the ACA. So Biden has the most tepid position. When you hear Klobuchar, for example, say she's for a public option, I think she's for a way weaker public option uh, than Medicare for America. To his credit, Beto Beto O'Rourke, though he didn't do well in the debates and may not actually stay in the upper tier, is for Medicare for America and is clear about it. And so I'll I'll give Beto that, (laughs) even though he had a he had a he had problems in the debate. (laughs) Robert has found a way to get Beto in now, like two or three three or four weeks in a row. But we appreciate that. Um, We're going to have to wrap up this podcast. Um, we look forward to having Rebecca Lynch next week. Uh, we look forward next week to getting into back on the offensive on health care. Uh, and again, we want to thank all of our listeners, all of our members who fought so hard to get Medicaid expansion. We feel your pain this 4th of July and this weekend, but we are not going to be silenced. We are going to continue the fight. And we also know who our real opponents are, and we will continue to go after them. But until then, until next week, you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Find us at citizenactionwi.org.